Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Chris Altman, an immunization pharmacist and the manager of clinical field services at Rite Aid's corporate headquarters in Camp Hill. Chris has been the point person for Rite Aid's COVID-19 response, working directly with FEMA and other governmental organizations to ramp up testing here in Pennsylvania. This is a timely episode because just over the weekend, Governor Wolf announced more specific guidelines for reopening counties here in Pennsylvania. The key metric is making sure that a county has fewer than 50 confirmed cases per 100,000 persons reported in the previous 14 days. So that means that if there are 800,000 people in a county, fewer than 400 new cases in the past two weeks is the maximum for when a county can reopen and start moving back to a sense of normalcy. Governor Wolf also specified three prongs that counties have to consider before reopening businesses and schools. The first is making sure that there is enough testing for people with symptoms, as well as those who work in certain key groups like healthcare and first responders. The second is ensuring that there is a robust contact tracing infrastructure to identify who had the disease and where they are located. And the third is implementing adequate safeguards at high-risk places like prisons and nursing homes, which is critically important, especially here in Pennsylvania, because 60% of COVID-19 cases have occurred in long-term care facilities, thus showing the real potential and the poison of this contagion once it enters a high-risk facility. In this episode, you'll hear Chris explain how Rite Aid coordinated its response with the federal government. You'll also hear him explain how testing has evolved over the past several weeks, what he thinks are important metrics that we need to identify in order to reopen society, and how Rite Aid has focused on addressing specific issues in our central Pennsylvania communities in responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. Pharmacists represent another category of heroes who are working day in and day out to keep our community safe. We will forever owe them a debt of gratitude. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Chris Altman. All right, I'm here with Chris Altman. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This discussion is very timely um, in terms of testing for COVID-19. And uh, as someone on the front lines at Rite Aid, you are the perfect person to talk to. But um, before we dive into it, can you just give us a little bit about your background and your role at Rite Aid? Sure. I am a registered pharmacist in the state of Pennsylvania and Ohio. I actually grew up in Northwest Ohio and went to pharmacy school at Ohio Northern University. I graduated in 2007 with my doctor of pharmacy and then started practicing as a, a community pharmacist with Rite Aid um, pretty much right away, right out of college started. And it's really interesting to look at sort of the the role of the pharmacist in community health management and the role of the pharmacist as it's evolved, even through my career, which hasn't really been as long lived as other people in, in healthcare. And um, when I first got out of college, the the new wave in pharmacy was providing immunizations, and that was how we were helping our communities and, and the role we were playing with with infectious disease and disease prevention. And just sort of seeing how a lot of that role has really evolved and changed. And my initial 
sort of claim to fame as a pharmacist was being an early adopter in the immunization program and really taking charge and, and using that as a way to help protect my communities. And then from there, we got other responsibilities sort of rolled into our, our role in the community. Uh, medication therapy management was another sort of clinical service that our pharmacists were providing. So it was direct patient level communication, looking at the medications they were on and balancing that against, is that what the patient should be on, knowing their disease states, and really highlighted the pharmacist as the healthcare provider. And it's really interesting to see how that has sort of evolved over the course. And then through that process, uh, I eventually became um, sort of earmarked within the organization and moved in some leadership roles in clinical services, specifically around those two things of our medication therapy management program and our immunization program. And most recently, uh, my role at Rite Aid has been one of the clinical managers out of our, our corporate office, managing and developing our immunization program, specifically the policies and procedures around it that expand to our entire footprint. So all of our 2,400 stores, that was all pre-COVID. So once COVID happened, um, sort of everything got put on on hold and, and we really quickly diverted and leveraged us as clinical managers at the organization to to look at what is COVID, how is it affecting our pharmacists, what role can our pharmacists play in educating the community? And then as we move forward through this, what role can we play within treatment, within testing, within diagnosis? So really looking at that role of the pharmacist, particularly the community pharmacist that they can play to, to really help the community get tested and get the information they need. What was the timeline like from your standpoint with, with COVID? Was this something that you had on your radar in January and were you know, monitoring as it progressed? Or was this like, you know, I feel like the rest of society, this almost felt like it hit us overnight. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about the timeline in terms of what the response looked like on the inside of, of Rite Aid? From a timeline, we pretty much were, were in the same bucket as the rest of the public. We didn't have necessarily any, any better insight than what the public had on this. Uh, we, we saw and we were hearing you know, about COVID and about the disease, and, and we were getting sort of the real-time updates that everyone else was getting. I think that's sort of a credit to the media and to what was already out there from an awareness perspective. From a response, though, we started fairly early in that. Um, as an organization, thinking through what our response is and thinking through what we want our pharmacists to know and how we want them to deliver this information back to the patient. So we were very, very intentional and thoughtful with pulling information from the CDC from the minute they started reporting it and getting it delivered to our pharmacists through our own internal communications. And we kept that line open the entire time to our pharmacists and sort of running in parallel to that, uh, we were operating a, a retail store in the community. So we also had to be aware of really the changes that were happening in that space to understand while we're protecting our communities, we're also protecting our associates. So we had to run parallel communications to our own associates about this is what you should be doing at the store level to protect yourself and then by extension protect anyone shopping in the store. So it was sort of two tracks we were running um, and thinking through as that information was available how do we communicate it and how do we communicate it in a way that works for their communities and our, our associates? And it's with how quickly the timeline has really progressed. I'd imagine, you know, this is a very um, fluid situation for you as well. Uh, what's like the, I know you mentioned a few things already, 
But in terms of a hierarchy, in terms of prioritizing, you mentioned, you know, the safety of your associates working for the community. But um, obviously now Rite Aid has gotten to the point where we're even testing here in the mid-state. Um, but what was the uh, progression there? You know, walk us through just a little bit of what your kind of short-term objectives were and how that progressed over the past couple of months. Rite Aid was initially approached um, by HHS and FEMA to help set up a, a FEMA sponsored is probably the best way to put it testing center. And what that really meant was we would supply the staff, we would supply the sort of infrastructure to get a testing site up in one of our Philadelphia locations. Um, and we would supply the, the physical spot for the testing center. And at the time, and it, when you mentioned like reactive and, and how quickly this evolved, it, it really evolved pretty much overnight where they reached out to us. They said, we want to use one of your sites. We want you to help us get this set up. And uh, my boss was on site within, I think, two or three days. And what is a site? Is that a store location? Yeah. So it is a store location. And, and all of the current testing we're doing is a drive-through testing. So all of this is taking place outside of the store. Hmm. It's taking place within the parking lot. So uh, our team was there on site within, like I said, probably two or three days getting this set up with FEMA. And it's actually really neat to think about how we were able to be one of the early adopters in this and help formulate and help develop the plan and the strategy for how these testing sites will run from a drive-through perspective. Um, being innovative in that space to think through, how do we screen people? How do we, how do we move them through the lines? How are we managing sample collection and then delivery of those samples to the lab? And really thinking through what role are our associates playing in this, particularly what role is our pharmacist playing in this, knowing that they're the healthcare providers there. So it was actually a really unique experience for our team to be in this position and, and be one of the first drive-through sites and being really one of the first private partners to get that up and running with FEMA. And that helped kind of springboard us into keep getting more sites up and evolving our testing program and our testing centers today. What was the relationship like with FEMA? Are they delegating this to you or is it more collaborative with them? In the beginning, it was very collaborative in that FEMA was, was working hand-in-hand, -hand providing us with the supplies, providing us with PPE. Uh, they provided us even with the lab contract for the analysis and then those results getting back to the patient. So it was very collaborative in that FEMA provided some of that back-end, almost back-office part of it where we were providing the frontline support. And then going forward, and, and the plan was always in place that eventually that FEMA support would be phased out and then we would have our own processes in place to sort of take it over and then continue to scale it with more sites. So throughout that entire process, we always had that on the horizon of where we were going and it gave us an opportunity to understand the process and then find the right vendor partners to support us to get these other sites up and running. And we were able to, to do that very, very quickly um, with the, the current geography we have getting the sites up and running. This is kind of just a basic question, but how does Rite Aid acquire the tests? We have some very good partners that are helping us. Um, the tests themselves, uh, it's, not, it's not an incredibly complicated process in that it's a saline vial um, or other transport medium. We're using saline and then a foam tip swab. So those two things are what you absolutely have to have from a physical requirement to get the sample collected. Now we also need to have a lab that's gonna receive that sample and analyze the results. And we have a, 
a very good relationship with a lab called Bioreference Labs. They have set up and support us from picking up those samples, getting them taken to their labs and analyzing the results out. So that's the, the physical sample itself and how that, the life cycle goes through it. Um, we worked with, FEMA gave us some local contacts to get, to get started. And then we directly reached out to the swab manufacturer themselves. We're purchasing the swabs. We directly reached out to a manufacturer for the saline vials. We're purchasing those and sourcing them out to our current site. So it's, it's not so much a, a kit, so to speak. Um, it's more just we got the supplies together and then we're kitting them, them ourselves on site to get them ready to go for sampling. Can you speak a little bit on the importance of testing? I mean, we, there are articles being written now about, you know, when can we expect to test for people who are not showing symptoms uh, and, you know, the importance of having a robust contact tracing infrastructure in place. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that and just um, beyond, you know, testing one particular person for uh, the disease, but at a macro level, what's the real, what's the value of having a, ro a really um, robust testing plan in place? It really comes down to to understanding the disease itself and the disease burden. And you kind of alluded to, to this individual testing, testing a person so they know whether or not they have COVID. And that's the right thing to do for that patient in that moment. But you have to think larger than that. Without testing, someone who has any symptom of COVID, which the early symptoms and mild symptoms are fairly vague. Um, when you think about a dry cough and a fever and fatigue, that's a pretty vague symptomology, and that could really be any cold, any flu. It could even be this time of year allergies where someone, they're just going to have that big question mark over their head. So to the immediate needs of that patient, getting them the results so they know, all right, I do have COVID. That means I need to self-isolate. I need to be home. I need to be out of work. I need to spend the next 14 days just planning on being you know, in this self-contained part of my life. That's important for that person. But how it translates to the community as well. Getting good results out to the communities helps them understand really what is the disease burden within the community. And that really helps dictate a lot of the other things we do from a support structure. So if we have a community that has a very low number of cases, it's probably gonna change the way we react to it and change what we do within that community. Um, if we have a community with a high number of cases, it's definitely gonna change the messaging in that you know, any symptom then you'd say, immediately get tested, immediately quarantine. Uh, whereas if you've got maybe a lower number of cases, you may not have that quick response to it. Um, the other thing that's really becoming big in the news now is understanding what's the back to work or what's the back to, to normal, quote unquote, going to look like. And <clears throat> we can't even get to that point and get thinking through what that looks like if we don't know what the disease burden truly is within a given area. So um, it really creates a challenge to figure out what is the right strategy if you don't know even what your current disease state is? So communities that maybe they just haven't had enough testing to know how many people have COVID, have, they're relying on bad data to determine whether or not to open back up. So that's really the second piece of this beyond the, the individual. That idea of getting the right data out there so the communities can make the right choices helps them move forward and helps them understand how do they open back up, what opens back up. Do they still need to practice that social distancing and, and how quickly and, and how aggressively can we start to evolve that? Do you have any sense for when we will have the necessary testing apparatus in place to do that the right way? 
testing has evolved. We, we've been testing now for about a month, if you include our FEMA site. And we've rolled out 25 sites in the course of about a two-week period to get the testing up and running. And even within that two-week window, uh, the whole testing landscape has changed several times over. Um, if you look at the original site we had, it was we were doing what was called a nasal pharyngeal test. Yeah, where they poke your brain? Yes. So that is <laughs> that is the test that everyone sort of, I don't want to say complains, but everyone, they remember what it felt like because it's a very long swab all the way in the back of your nose. And to your, to your comment, it does feel like you're poking your brain or at least we're poking your eyeball. Um, even thinking about that, we're no longer doing that test. We've transitioned to a nasal swab, which is a smaller swab. It's a foam tip swab just on the inside part of your nose where the patient themselves is doing it. The, a clinician does not have to do it. So we saw that transition. And with that transition, we saw really the idea of being able to test became a lot easier because the, the PPE requirement to do a self-swab is considerably lower than what the PPE requirement was for the nasal pharyngeal. Mm, how so? Um, so nasal pharyngeal, because it is clinician driven, the clinicians have to get very close to the patients in that I am physically touching you with a swab going into your nose. So as the clinician doing it, I would have to be fully gowned head to toe. I'd have to have a face mask. I'd have to have a, a, an N95 respirator, gloves. And then as soon as I'm done with you and I want to test the next person, I'd have to completely refresh all my PPE. So it created an obstacle and a challenge in that um, we had to have that PPE for each person readily available to swap out. Um, so that's why we transitioned away from it. Now with the nasal swab, you're the patient. I can tell you from a distance, and we have our pharmacist set up six feet away from the patients. I can tell you from a distance while you're in your car how to do the swab yourself. And then I can observe you doing it to make sure you're doing it correctly. In that scenario, the PPE requirement is much less in that I just have to have a regular mask on and gloves. That's it. And then once you're done, the only thing that has to be changed are my gloves. So my gloves get changed. I get hand sanitizer. I sanitize wherever you had touched from a per table perspective. And I put new gloves on. So it's much less PPE, which by extension made the testing more easy to do. And then we could then do more testing because we're able to get through those tests quicker. Even yeah, looking, like yeah, and even looking forward, we have self-test now. So we've got some labs are making it available for a patient to order a test that gets delivered to their home. They do the swab themselves. They mail those results in. So just thinking through that, that evolution happened in the course of about three weeks. The future, the testing capacity could change considerably, and the, the availability availability of these tests changes, which means we can test more people. It sounds like even the timeline for the results has really sped up. I was um, I had somebody on the podcast about three weeks ago who was one of the first patients at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center for their drive-through testing site, and she was saying how you know it took 13 days to get the results back. Um, it, I'm guessing that's no longer the case. Is it? Is it a shorter time frame now for getting those results? We have from our lab partner uh, about a two to seven day window to get results back from when the test was performed. Um, that all relates to the capacity of the labs themselves. In the beginning, I believe it was just one lab that was running all of these tests and or state labs. So when you think about the volume of samples they were receiving, I, it just sort of maxed out their ability to analyze these quickly and get the results back out. Since then, 
Um, all the labs across the U.S. have ramped up their capacity, and they plan to continue increasing capacity so they can receive these results or receive these samples, analyze them, and then deliver the results back. So it has been um, a reaction from these labs to make sure that they can provide these results back quickly. Um, in addition, there is some testing that's done on site um, with what's called a point of care machine, which is about a 15-minute turnaround time to get the test analyzed uh, from an analyzer on site. So that's the other thing that sort of changed the uh, the landscape of this and that that may be giving some relief to those labs because now people are doing the testing and analysis on site versus sending them into the lab. What's the state of testing like here in the mid-state? You know, if somebody did want to get a test at a Rite Aid facility, um, how would they go about doing it? And what are the options available just in terms of geography where they could go? Uh, right now, we Rite Aid has uh, 25 total testing sites put up um, across all of our geography and our footprint. Um, within the mid-state, uh, particularly looking at the Harrisburg area, we have a testing center, uh, one of our Rite Aids on Linglestown Road in Harrisburg. Uh, we have another testing center in York on Leader Heights Road. And then throughout PA, we also have a site in Plains, uh, and we have a site in Erie. Then we have a site in Monroeville and a site in Philadelphia, which was our first original site. So in Pennsylvania, um, just by sort of default, Rite Aid has a very strong presence here. So um, we were able to open up a lot of the testing centers here. Um, and we also used um, HHS gave us direction as far as identifying hotspots that may have a higher need for testing. So we worked with them to sort of match our footprint up to what they were acknowledging as sites that needed testing. So that's really how we ended up with the, the number of sites here in PA. And so if somebody wants to get a test, do they have to go through your website? Is there like a screening process? There is. We have uh, on rideaid.com, our top banner is a uh, all about coronavirus, and you click there. It takes you to a third-party vendor called Verily, who they take you through a screening process today to basically screen to make sure you're eligible for testing. And the, really the only criteria we have in place right now would be that you have to be over 18 and you have to have symptoms. Um, that has also evolved. So when you talk about thinking uh, through what testing has changed, it, it really was in the beginning a very narrow category of people. Um, part of that related to the capacity of the labs. And now we've sort of broadened that out to say anyone over 18 with symptoms should and can be tested. So uh, going through the screening process, she would determine that you're eligible for testing. And then from there, you'd schedule an appointment. And for the most part, our appointments are being scheduled next day. Um, and it gives you a time frame to choose from. Um, it tries to fill really top to bottom. So morning through afternoon, you'd have an opportunity to schedule an appointment to come in and get tested. How does Rite Aid base the, um, when they're doing the screening and looking for symptoms, do they use the CDC guidelines? I mean, I know I saw today that the CDC updated that list with the, with several more symptoms. Um, I read last week that I think it was out of Northeastern University that reported, um, you know, this kind of bizarre COVID toes development um, in especially young people uh, in Mount Sinai and New York. They're seeing an increased number of strokes. Um, when Rite Aid puts together its kind of package for looking at what COVID can be identified as, do they look to the CDC for that guidance? We do. We, we leverage the CDC and we leverage those governing bodies to tell us what should we do and how should we be doing it? Because they're the ones that are building this. And that's that's consistent across most of all the testing centers. Um, we do have some catches in there. So individuals that are have with severe symptoms, so a severe fever, or they've got sort of a concomitant layer of symptoms, 
Um, those individuals, we wouldn't recommend for testing, but we would recommend that they go seek care from a physician because really that we don't want them because of the, the degree of their symptoms. We would want them to seek care to get treatment um, and supportive care rather than come on site for testing. Okay. Um, are you seeing any trends here in Pennsylvania? I mean, I, I know obviously there are, I think it's um, something like 60% of the COVID cases in Pennsylvania are, are from long-term care facilities. Uh, but have you noticed any um, metrics over the past month that has given you more clarity on who's being affected and where they are and if certain demographics are more susceptible to the virus than others? We probably haven't collected enough data to see real clear trends at this point. Our, our last testing site opened um, last Thursday on the 23rd. So we're still in the early stages of that. Um, we are collecting a lot of demographics about these individuals that are being tested as far as age, we're collecting race, we're collecting ethnicity, we know where they're coming from to be tested. So that all is kind of getting thrown together. And then we're sharing that, and this is, I think, a really important part of this, we're, we're sharing that data with the State Department of Health as well as localities. Uh, so they can balance that against other tests that's being done. So they can maybe look at a more global picture and draw some conclusions because when you think through and you mentioned a lot of those tests showing positive rates from long-term care, those are probably individuals that are not going to come on site to be tested from Rite Aid. They're probably being tested through another vehicle. So you have to think about the global picture here. If, if Rite Aid's serving a community-based testing and we're serving people that are traveling in and out of the community, that's really important to give that feedback back to the state so they can see the Rite Aid population that's community-based, how is that different than the hospital population? How is that different than the population of those long-term care facilities? So they can understand what's the community spread versus what's the institutional spread. And even so, we, we probably have a much different demographic from age and race and, and all of that than what a hospital may be seeing because the hospitals are probably seeing you know, the sickest of sick. So they're seeing those people coming and seeking care, whereas we may be seeing someone who's got you know, not as severe or as extreme symptoms. Um, and we may be seeing individuals that you know, they're, they're out in the community regularly. Maybe they're trying to go back to work. Um, maybe they're just seeking that sort of stamp of approval so that they can, they can sort of take themselves out of that isolation. So I think it's important to, to pull that data together and, and look to state agencies to analyze that. And then in addition to state, we're sharing that with CDC as well. So they're looking at that on a global U.S. perspective to kind of see where those hotspots are and, and the trends that they may be able to identify. You've mentioned a few times the work that you're doing with the state and federal governments, whether it's the um, CDC or FEMA or HHS, or even here in the, the, the state level. Um, can you talk a little bit about the importance of having uh, a really strong state and federal government in place in a time like this? Um, you know, I, not from a political standpoint, but just purely from an informational and data standpoint and the role that the government really can play during a crisis like this. Yeah, we actually had really good support from both the federal government as well as state agencies as we were rolling this out. And part of that comes from just tactical support in that they helped us get the word out. Um, they helped us to educate other providers in the area and help educate the public about the testing. Um, they also helped us with some just logistics of it as far as some states have provided us with PPE when we weren't able to get it from our, our other resources. Um, the federal government was help, was able to help us really sort of lobby on our behalf back to these vendors to say, 
hey, Rite Aid's trying to get this, this testing up and running. It would be really great if you could help make sure that they get X number of swabs. So they've been really good about advocating back to these vendors and suppliers for us. And then I think it's really nice to see, you know, the state agencies and the state governments and, and governors champion us as those community leaders. Cause that's the one thing I think that's unique and special about pharmacy is there's, there's a pharmacy in every community. And if it's not a Rite Aid, it's a different pharmacy, right? So there's always going to be that, that pharmacy. That's a, a great resource to the communities, whether it's for traditional pharmacy operations or in this scenario where we can help with COVID testing. Um, it's great to see those pharmacists elevated and recognized and to see the role that we can play. And that's really been, I think, the biggest benefit here is seeing those partnerships build and seeing how we're acknowledged and we're able to help the communities and then get that response back from the state agencies has been really good. Yeah, no, I think it's um, it's very fair to say at this point that we simply couldn't have a functioning society without pharmacists. Um, they're really kind of the, the ground floor of this response. Um, what do you see, Chris, as some of the challenges going forward in the short term and long term as you look to how this has developed so far and and where we can expect to be, you know, a few months down the line. The short-term challenges, I think, are going to be continuing to roll out these testing sites and continuing to roll them out um, really to the areas that need them and, and to work as sort of one large operation together to make sure that we're, we're getting these sites opened up in the areas that need them. It's, it's challenging in that just from a logistics standpoint, um, we're staffing multiple sites we're we're staffing multiple pharmacies and people trying to get these sites up and running so that's that's some of the challenges our end i think um in the probably the next step of this is is understanding how we can leverage these testing sites to help support states and governments and localities and understanding their their back to work plan or their their opening plan um so i think that's going to be sort of our next step and then really looking forward to how will testing evolve, understanding I think the the next step is understanding what antibody testing looks like and that what we're doing today is testing for true viral load. So do you have active infection from the COVID virus? And that's what we're testing for. But what we're looking to the future to say is, did you, Tom Breyer, get exposed a month ago? Maybe you had mild symptoms and were never tested. Do we know that you have antibodies and is your antibody level high enough in that now you really are safe, and I'm using air quotes there, from getting sick again in that, you know, it's sort of like if you think about having chickenpox, you get chickenpox once, you get antibodies from it, and then you really don't get chickenpox again. So do we do we have the data to say that we can start testing individuals for antibodies and then knowing that they're safe to go out because they won't get sick again from COVID? And I think that's the next step understanding how all those pieces work together and then getting the public and and the everyone involved to understand what is the difference like who gets who needs to be tested for virus and who needs to be tested for antibody and mm. and thinking through how that translates into this whole response do you see a uh, it seems like Rite Aid and COVID are going to have a relationship for a long time is that fair <laughs> to say um, I believe we'll, so I'll say this I think we're going to have some sort of a response from testing until there is a vaccine available. And I believe at that stage, we will, we will as a healthcare community, pivot very quickly to, to vaccination. 
particularly if that vaccine is is highly effective. So if the vaccine is highly effective, we could get out ahead of this, start vaccinating very quickly, um, and start vaccinating a, a number of people very quickly, and that would really reduce the need for COVID testing. But um, most of the vaccine manufacturers out there are still saying that they're looking at probably a year out before that happens, if not longer. Um, of course, that all depends on how the the, the different trials go and, and what their effectiveness looks like and a lot more questions behind that. But I think we'll be testing for COVID through the duration until we have some sort of a vaccine available. Well, Chris, you taught me a lot during this conversation and more than anything, you give me peace of mind to know that you know, people like you are on the front lines of this. And um, like you said at the beginning, the pharmacists have really been put um, on the face of this response as being the ones who are leading the effort. So it's uh, truly heartening to hear the story and to hear how the community is working together, both the government and private industry uh, to get through this. So thanks very much for, for sharing your insights and your story with us. You're welcome.